Welcome to episode 12 of the audio podcast, The Holocaust in Hungary. Subtitle, It Can Happen Here. As we pick up, transferring more Jews from the ghetto to the protected houses or to the international ghetto still will not be 100% assurance to save lives. The Nazi Aerocross gangs were getting more wild and brutal and they didn't respect anything anymore. We were afraid that before the Red Army invaded, the Aerocross gangs would start mass executions. It did not happen, but the torture and killing went on until the last minute. I know it is hard to imagine and harder to believe that normal people would walk into a building and shoot and kill them because they were Jewish. But at the end of December 1944, it happened in Hungary and in cities in Germany too. It is hard to understand why those 16 to 19 year old Nazi Aerocross youths became senseless, brutal killers themselves when they saw the German SS and Gestapo sadistic and humane actions against the Jews. To try to understand the situation in 1944 when the killings were everyday events, we have to go back to the late 1930s when some of the Nazi sympathizers under the pressure of the Hitler regime started to enact restricting laws against the Jewish population in Hungary. The politicians, the members of both houses in the parliament, copied the Jewish restriction laws, more or less of the Third Reich. As the Nazis said, the Jews are nothing else but parasites and enemies of the Third Reich. After a while, the Hungarian parliament started to enact similar restricting laws against the Jewish population. These laws were accusing the Jews of taking over the power in Hungary by controlling the economy through their involvement in the commercial and industrial fields. The government wanted to replace the wealthy Jews whose position in the commercial and industrial fields was threatening the national security. The parliament declared that the Jews were taking over the country and taking away jobs from the Hungarian people. Therefore, they are enemies of Hungary. Those kids who were in school in the lower grades in the late 1930s learned how to hate the Jews. They learned the hate in school, at home, and through the media. Five or six years later, when they were in their mid-teens, they had the anti-Semitism in their blood already. We just can't blame this younger generation 100% for their behavior because it was a failure of the government and its laws, dictated by the Third Reich. When they grew up to be 16 to 18 year olds, they didn't know better. They grew up and started to behave like monsters. Toward the end of 1944, there were still approximately 125,000 Jews living in the capital. All the German military started to retreat from Hungary. The Nazi SS and the Gestapo closed their offices, and the Gestapo headquarters on Svab Heki Street was abandoned in a hurry. The Gestapo and the rest of the Nazis were no more threat to the Jewish population in Budapest. Some of the Wehrmacht forces were still fighting in the eastern suburb of the capital, but all the rest of the Germans were moving back all the remaining war machines toward the Austrian frontier. Since the Nazis' grip started to ease on the Hungarian authorities, Charles Lutz, the Swiss vice consul, tried again to get, to get some military protection for the Jews in Budapest. Ferenc Szalazy, the fanatic anti-Semitic leader of the Aerocross party, turned him down again. The military leaders took orders from Zelazy. They could not help either. The military leaders who didn't agree with Zelazy didn't want to help because they could trigger off a situation whereby the Hungarian soldier will fight against the other. 
it was useless to ask the police for protection because the police department was short on manpower. And besides, they were poisoned by anti-Semitism too and didn't want to help the Jews. Several members of the police department were responsible for torturing and murdering Jews. Charles Lutz, beside his office in the Swiss consulate, opened his second office in one of his protected houses. He kept one person from the Swiss consulate in this office 24 hours a day. He had a direct phone connection between his main office and the clerk had full diplomatic immunity through the Swiss consulate. In case something went wrong, we would know about it immediately. On December 28, 1944, an Aerocross gang in uniforms forced themselves into the Jewish hospital. They forced 32 patients who could walk into a truck and took them to the Aerocross party headquarters on Stephanie Street. All of them were thrown into the basement for a while. Then one of the Nazis called two Jews by their names and took them upstairs. These two were sent home and their lives were spared because one of the Nazis knew them previously and decided to save them. These armed punks were the masters of life and death in those days. We heard from our undercover agent that one house marked with the yellow star on Jokai Street was saved from all the Aerocross gang's raid because one of the former Nazis' girlfriends was living there. The rest of the Jews in the basement were undressed, tortured, and then brutally murdered one by one by their captors. Their bodies were thrown onto a truck during the night, taken to the bank of the Danube River, and dumped into the water. On December 29, 1944, on Therese Circle Road, an Aerocross corporal, head of a six-member patrol unit, was hit by a bullet coming from an unknown source. In 15 minutes, the streets were flooded with Nazis. They chased all the Jews out of the surrounding houses and searched all the rooms in each building, but did not find any incriminating evidence that the shot was fired by a Jew. Although the injury was not serious, and they did not find any proof of who did it, they still started to beat the Jews back to their apartments. After that, the houses around there were raided every day. On December 31st, we received a call from one of Charles Lutz's protected houses that, the, that had an office in it. The caller, who was a member of the Swiss consulate, was very nervous and told us that a large number of Aircroft youths and adults assembled in front of the largest Swiss protected house. He could not find Lutz and he was afraid that the Nazis will forcefully enter the building and harm the Jews. We tried to locate Lutz but could not find him either. We jumped into the ambulance and raced to the nearest military base where we had connections, which was about two and a half kilometers away from where the Jews were in danger. We tried to persuade the captain in charge to help. He agreed and ordered 12 soldiers to jump into the trucks immediately and drive to the given location, and he was coming too. By the time we arrived, the Aerocross gang had already blasted open the locked and barricaded doors with hand grenades, and the machine guns were barking like mad dogs. The captain ordered his men to level their firearms on the Nazis and ordered the Aerocross gang to stop shooting and leave the building. With some hesitation, they obeyed the order. The captain put the leader of the gang under arrest and ordered the rest of them to leave the area. After they left, we found three Jews dead and one died from injuries a day later. There were several gunshot wounds and injuries from the blast of the hand grenades. We took the injured Jews to the Jewish hospital and after treatment we took them back to the glass house. They called the building the glass house because previously it was a department store 
and had more windows than walls. At the time of the Nazi Aerocross attack, over 850 Jews were living in the building. And without military intervention, probably a massacre would have taken place. The situation and the safety of people's lives, Jews or non-Jews, was getting worse by the day. The Aerocross gangs were roaming the streets of the capital. Anybody they did not like could fall prey to them. On New Year's Day, 1945, three men in Aerocross uniforms and three men in Wehrmacht uniforms broke into a well-known jewelry store on Vassy Street. They blasted the safe open and took everything valuable. The eyewitnesses watching them from a building across the street said they were not in a hurry to get away because they were dividing the loot right on the spot. The police department did not even want to file the robbery when it was reported because the eyewitness could not identify the robbers and they didn't have times for things like that anyhow. On the following day, three Aerocross youths in uniform in broad daylight forced themselves into the villa of a wealthy industrialist on Rosa Dom. The building was unoccupied because the owner's factory was demolished by an air raid and they moved to the province. They left the custodian and his wife behind to take care of the property. The Nazi Aerocross shot both of them to death. They robbed the place and even loaded some of the furniture on their truck. This time when the report was made to the police department, the description of the robbers and their names were given too. The police department could not find them and the case was forgotten. Evidently, some members of the police department in the capital were working with the Aerocross gangs. On January 3, 1945, a gang of four young men in Aerocross uniforms entered a well-known restaurant in the western part of the capital, in Buda. They chased the already eating customers out of the place and then started to mess up the place. They stopped when the owner pleaded with them, but when the owner could not produce the meal they ordered, they took him to the kitchen, submerged his head in the soup container, and let him choke to death. After that, they robbed the place, demolished everything with machine guns, and left. No punitive action from the police department was ever taken. On January 4, 25 Jews were taken from one of the Wallenberg Swedish protected houses. They were taken to the Aerocross headquarters on Stephanie Street, where the Nazis tortured them and forced them to disrobe. They were locked in the basement for two days. No water or any kind of food was given to them during that time. Two days later, only their underwear and the shoes were given back to them. Then the Nazis chased them out to the street and told them to go home. On the way home, another Aerocross gang stopped them and asked them for their identification papers. These Jews were robbed two days ago and all their clothes and documents were taken away from them at the Aerocross headquarters on Stephanie Street. They tried to explain that to the gang leader, but the Nazis did not accept that excuse because they could not prove who they were. The Nazis shot all 25 of them to death on the street in broad daylight. Later, their bodies were thrown on a truck, taken to the riverbank, and dumped into the water. Raul Wallenberg was protesting immediately at the Hungarian authorities, but he was told there is no more diplomatic connection between Hungary and the Swedish government. He almost cried when he told us about that situation. He was helpless and could not do anything about it. Wallenberg mentioned his continuous reports to the War Refugee Board and his connection with the U.S. government. But right now, when we had no phone connection outside the capital, everything looked hopeless. 
On January 5, 1945, a truckload of Aerocross gang drove up to the protected house on Ishtenhege. Armed with machine guns, they broke down the doors, lined up the inhabitants, threatening them with the machine gun shots, and calling all kinds of pigs. They took away an unknown number of Jews and drove them to the brick factory in Obuda. Charles Lutz was on alert and called Ferenc Szilazy's office immediately, complaining that the Hungarian government is breaking international laws by insulting and murdering the citizens of a neutral Swiss country. At his request, a military unit was dispatched from the closest military base. But by the time they arrived, the military unit arrived at the brick factory, several Jews were shot to death. The military unit, with the captain in charge, overpowered the Aerocross gang and arrested the Aerocross sergeant and chased the rest of them away after they laid their firearms on the ground. According to the captain's report, they found 17 dead. 43 were alive, but some of them were injured. The live ones were taken back to the protected house, and their safety passes were given back to them. The sergeant was put in military confinement and kept there until the war ended. Later, he was found guilty by the People's Court for ordering the Nazis to kill and participating personally in the killing of innocent people, and he was hanged by the neck. On January 6, the Communist forces drew so close to the capital that the machine gun fire and the blasting sound of the hand grenades was clearly noticeable. Due to the violation of diplomatic immunity, Raul Wallenberg and the Swiss consulate were strongly protesting the Aerocross gang's atrocious behavior against the Jews in the protected houses. After hard negotiations between Raul Wallenberg, the Swiss consul, and the Hungarian authorities, an agreement was achieved. Ferenc Szilazy knew that Hitler lost the war, and so did sat the satellite nations. He knew that after the capital was taken by the communist forces, the rest of the country would surrender without condition. Since the war was almost over, to lessen their crimes committed against the Jewish population in Hungary, he tried to show a little understanding toward the misery of the Jews. Szilazy ordered that Raoul Wallenberg can move 5,000 Jews from the ghetto or houses marked with the yellow star to the international ghetto under the protection of the Swiss consulate and provided by the protective Swedish passports. Furthermore, he allowed 5,000 more Jews to be relocated under Swiss and papal protection with protective passports. Raul Wellenberg and his staff started to make up the protective documents so he can pass them out while he was moving the Jews to the international ghetto. The Swiss consulate and Angelo Rada did the same thing. Meanwhile, the International Red Cross filed a lawsuit against the Aerocross party in the military court. The Red Cross was accusing the party members that they were repeatedly committing crimes against the Hungarian citizens every time the Aerocross gangs dumped the food on the ground that was provided by the Red Cross. Since the food was not only for the Jews but for all the Hungarian citizens in Budapest who were hungry because they did not have any money to buy food, Unlawfully denying the rights of the Hungarian people by not letting them eat when they were hungry is a crime committed against them. Szilazy agreed that Wallenberg can move the Jews, but he did not promise any protection for them, except for four days while they are moving to the international ghetto. Although the Swiss consulate, consul and Raul Wallenberg had permission of the Hungarian authorities to move the Jews from one place to another, nobody could stop the un now uncontrollable savage Aerocross gangs. For four days, the Nazis were ordered not to take any action against the Jews during that four days. They were raiding private homes looking for hidden Jews.
penalty for hiding a Jew was death by firing squad without any hearing or trial. In two days, they raided hundreds of apartments and houses. In case nobody answered the door because these people were working, the Aerocross Nazis broke it down, searched, and robbed the place. During two days, 189 robberies were reported to the central police station. Several times, the Nazis did not accept the birth certificate or other documents that proved the person is a Christian. In that case, he had to prove he was not circumcised. At that time in Europe, it was not a common prospect, procedure to circumcise the newborn boys like in the USA. It was only done on Jewish newborns or for, by a special request of the parents. On January 9th, the Hungarian Gestapo detained six men while they were standing in line for food. They were picked randomly from the line and were taken to the Hungarian Gestapo headquarters on Svab Hegi in Buda. The charge was not wearing the proper armband with the yellow star on it, as described by the law. The punishment for that crime was deportation in most cases, but since the Red Army almost encircled the capital, deportation was impossible. The Swiss Vice Consul Charles Lutz did not waste any time to get up to the Gestapo headquarters, but he was told that the Jews were released already. Lutz did not believe the Gestapo, but he could not do anything about it. His doubt was proved by our undercover agent who reported that the Jews were loaded on a truck and taken to an unlo unknown location. The six Jews belonged to six different families, but they never returned home. We had a strong indication that all six of them were murdered and dumped into the Danube River. Although the capital was almost encircled by the Red Army, the western part of the divided city, Buda, still had an open road toward the Austrian border. Taking advantage of these safe roads and traveling toward the west, some of the previous regime's cabinet members, employees of different ministries, and the Treasury Department formed motor vehicle caravans and were moving toward west. Several thousand people who did not want the communist dictatorship and had a motor vehicle or a friend could join the caravan. In the western part of the country, there were thousands of abandoned motor vehicles in parking lots or farms left there for safety purposes. Anybody who had the money could buy a car without any problem. Raul Wellenberg still had available money and he was willing to buy about a hundred motor vehicles. With the help of Charles Lutz, the International Red Cross, and the underground organizations, we started to smuggle Jews from the protected houses and added to the motor vehicle caravan. Some of them were in uniform as safeguards but all of them with forged documents were driving toward freedom. Nobody ever stopped or checked these caravans because the majority of them were government officials and their families. We managed to save at least 500 Jewish lives with a little trick and a lot of courage. We had a meeting with Raul Wellenberg on January 10, 1945 and suggested he leave the capital with the last military unit. We were afraid at the last minute he would be attacked by some Nazi gang when no one can witness it. We knew that he had some connection with American intelligence, and when the communists took over party power, they might hold it against him. Raul Wellenberg was a daredevil on certain occasions, and he was determined to stay no matter what. He wanted to fight for the rights of the Jews after a new government was formed. We had to accept his decision, hoping that no harm will come to him. After the four days grace period was over on January 10, 1945, 
the Nazi Air Cross gang started to strike again. A dozen men, younger and older men in party uniform, forced themselves into one of the houses under Swedish protection. First they got rid of the Swedish flag and then started to round up the Jews. The air was filled with screams, cries, and begging, but nothing could stop the Nazi Aerocross murderers. They were perfect replicas of the German Nazi SS killers. The only difference between them was that the members of the German Einsatzgruppen were trained for killing without mercy, but the Hungarian Aerocross party members never had any training, they just did it naturally. They opened fire on the shivering, crying, and begging people. If someone tried to run, they let him get away for 50 feet and then cut him down. All of those who were lined up on the street were brutally massacred in broad daylight. Somebody from a nearby house called the military authorities. By the time the military forces arrived, the Aerocross gang was gone, left behind about 50 dead Jews, men, women, and children. The International Red Cross was called to take care of the bodies. These days were crucial for the underground organizations, too. We snatched Jews from the houses marked with the yellow star almost every day. We took them to places where the Nazis would not even think to look for them. Besides, they all had unquestionable papers proving that they are Christians, originating from Christian parents. The only thing that bothered us was the fact that we could not save enough people because we didn't have enough time to do it. We might save 10 people today, but the Nazis killed 50 of them the same day. Time was the biggest factor these days. We could not keep all the houses with the yellow star on them under surveillance all the time. Some of the protected houses were in Pest. Editors note that's the east side of the river. Others on the west side of the city in Buda. The Aerocross gangs attacked these houses at random without any warning. Most of the time, when we received a call about their brutality, it was too late to help. Sometimes we overheard messages on the phone or got information from those people who were working for us, but it still was not 100% satisfactory. While the Nazis wanted to destroy the Jews, the International Red Cross tried to save them from starvation, still having open kitchens in the ghetto and some other streets of the city, serving hot soup or other food for those who had no other possibility to eat. At this time, we'll draw to a close the end of episode 12 of the audio podcast, The Holocaust in Hungary, subtitled, It Can Happen Here. Let the listener take note of the power of the propaganda in causing the sadistic behavior of the Nazi aircraft youth that George described in this episode.